0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Great to have you with us, Helen Farmer with you today. And we are talking health with the gynae clinic. Dr. Maram Awatai was on hand as we asked, are girls starting their period earlier than ever before? Plus answering all of your questions around women's health. Professor Hamid al Shamsi was on hand as we discussed breast cancer in the Arab world. His book has been downloaded more than 300,000 times. So what are those key learnings? Family lawyer Madeleine Mendy was on hand answering your legal questions on everything to do with family law. And I was finding out if I should trust my intuition. So delighted to welcome back to the studio, consultant, obstetrician and gynecologist. She's got her own clinic at Healthcare City. Dr. Mariam Awatai is with us. How are you, doctor? Very well, Helen. Thank you for having me back. My pleasure. Keeping busy? Yes. What's keeping you busy? Super busy. You women. It doesn't (laughs) stop. It's Never. <laughs> um, any babies around? Oh, there have been uh, about four babies this week, actually. Oh, the oh, last week, not oh this week. Gosh. It's been great. It's been good. Oh, it's well, a highlight. We can talk about all sorts. <laughs> yes. in this. It's an open clinic, free clinic. So what is keeping you busy right now? Are you noticing any kind of seasonal trends or any um, issues arising? It's a great question, Helen. I mean, it's it's back
2: to school. So moms are, you know, back into a routine. And actually, it's probably the time that they get to take a breather and they say, look, I've just finished the summer and I need to look out for myself. Mm-hmm. I'm due X amount of checks. Mm-hmm. So we're often finding women coming in with uh, for well women checks, really. And this is something that we seriously encourage. Um, I think coming to a gynecologist should be almost like remembering to go to your dentist. Um, it, you, it, you don't have to wait for when you get a symptom. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, again, we encourage this and we see women and we go through really detailed history with them. And you would be surprised, Helen, how often um, we pick
1: things up that had gone, um, you know, not noticed. Do you have women who might be living with Conditions or pain, and thinking it's normal. Absolutely. In fact, you'd mentioned about
2: a spike this week. I've actually seen a spike of chronic pelvic pain, and uh, out of maybe about four or five women, maybe I said just five for the purposes of calculation, I would say that good seventy-five percent of those women had endometriosis. They didn't know they they had endometriosis. They had cysts, um, small endometriotic. Uh, deposits, endometriosis, very common condition, occurs anytime between the ages of 18 and 45, um, even sometimes after that. And women have lived with pain. So it starts off with painful periods. When their periods start, everyone is told, look, it's just your period. Don't worry about it. The pain is supposed to stop when they get married. It doesn't. And they just continue to have pain, chronic pelvic pain, and live with it. Mm-hmm. Some get misdiagnosed as irritable bowels um, and uh, so have been to multiple gastroenterologists. And unless someone thinks, okay, there is nothing in the gut, Try to see your, your gynecologist because endometriosis is interesting. It does not mimic the, the, what you see doesn't mimic the symptoms. So, um, I had a patient with severe symptoms, severe chronic pelvic pain, and I ended up doing a laparoscopy on her and found two spots. Just two spots of endometriotic tissue, which is tissue that should be in the endometrium, but is outside. And I found this on one in the ligament. We call it the uterus ligament. And I found another one just at the side of her pelvis.
1: And these two spots were enough to cause severe pain. It's really heartbreaking, isn't it? Because whether you're talking about well pain such as that or indeed you know incontinence there are so many issues that are common but not normal absolutely and we're just not talking about them absolutely Um, i wanted to ask you and i ask you this as a a mum of daughters when should you first go as a teen to an expert such as yourself and when do you stay with your family doctor for women's health issues it's a
2: really good question again helen I honestly think it is from the start of the period. So I think that young girls, when they start their periods, so we call this menarche, when that happens. I've never heard that word before. Yeah. So it's, like, it's called menarche. So M-E-N. <laughs> like anarchy. And then ararchy, like, ar- like anarchy. <laughs> the Greeks obviously got it right. <laughs> menarche. Absolutely. Never heard that before. So, so they start their periods and... Um, Sometimes it's so irregular. They'll have one period and then six months later, nothing. Um, but I still think that's the time that moms should, should say, well, you know, come see your gynecologist. Mm-hmm. Just get used to it. So the young teen comes in or the young 11-year-old, 12-year-old comes in. And it's so friendly. It's not a frightening experience at all we have a chat where jovial i love my my young my young women they're just amazing and uh, they instead of sharing stories amongst their peers which is what usually happens mm-hmm. where they constantly compare my friends had this my friends had that why aren't i getting that or i'm getting this why aren't they getting that um then they hear it from an expert and it makes things so much
1: easier, you know, as they go through through their menstrual period. You've been in this game for a few decades now, Dr. Yes. Um There is some data out of the States that says... That girls are getting their periods younger and I wondered if that was echoing your experiences it's in clinic. It's actually true Helen Do we know why? Lots
2: of things have been put forward I mean so the, the common ones that you hear is the food, the fact that a lot of our food is no longer fresh and a lot of our food is preserved and some of the preservatives have got growth like factors in them or hormone uh, effects um, and therefore it's making periods come on but generally, we don't know. It's not a hundred percent. But we are seeing um, women having or girls having periods a lot earlier. By definition, you, a woman is uh, a girl is not precocious unless she has a period less than eight years old. So precocious puberty would be younger than eight. Younger than eight. So any girl who's having her period eight to nine sounds young, but actually, by definition. They're still normal. They're still it within a normal period.
1: Really young. I know, and I say that as the mum of a six-year-old and yeah. an eight-year-old, who I don't really trust them to brush their teeth. Never mind look after <laughs> their kind of. you so lovely. Feminine hygiene. So true. So true. But
2: think about menstrual periods as a as a curve. Your your normal curve. So you will have five percent of young girls having their periods really early, mm. and then the vast majority in that bell-shaped curve. Um, are going to have their periods, the usual, which is between 11 and 15. And then another 5% at the end of that bell-shaped curve will have their periods when they're around 16. So it's not so common, and uh, but it's not always abnormal.
1: Dr. Marion with us today.
0: This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis. Always
1: a busy one when Dr. Mario Mawatai is here. She's a consultant, obstetrician and gynaecologist. She's got her own clinic in Health Care City. And we've had a message from a gentleman listener saying, please mansplain typical age for a daughter to have her first period and typical age to expect menopause. Now, we've just been talking about girls getting their period, And you explained that beautifully about that kind of curve going all the way through from eight to nine, which is relatively unusual then you're 11 to 15 being much more typical and then older, 15, 15 and upwards. What about menopause? And this is a kind of a how long is a piece of string? But, but typically for this listener, what, what would you tend to advise as a guideline? Okay,
2: thank you, Helen. Again, I love the word mansplain it. His words, not my word. <laughs> I will mansplain the menopause, okay? <laughs> and uh, really the typical age for menopause is 51. That's the average age. But it's an average and I can't just mansplain. It away because it starts a lot earlier actually. So it starts with ovarian resistance and the climacteric period, which can be as early as 37. Um, the periods are still there but they just get increasingly irregular. And by the time the woman reaches 51, she should have complete cessation of those periods. So the definition of menopause is a year of no periods. Absolutely. So okay. 12 months of absolutely no periods. And within that 12 months of course if she starts to get spotting she's no longer menopausal, she's still perimenopausal. But I have to stress again Helen, around that time is the time that women tend to have real problems in the lining of their wombs. Things like hyperplasia, precancer changes and even polyps and sometimes cancer. Okay. So any any changes, any
1: abnormal uterine bleeding around that time has to be investigated. Hope that helps. Um, let's bring it back to puberty, if you don't mind. Um, and I wondered, when it comes to our tweens and teens, what are some of the products you tend to recommend for families when it comes to that first period, Doctor Marion? Really good question as well. So that first period is a stressful time
2: for everyone, really. And I strongly recommend that young teens don't start off using tampons. I think that they need to use um, cotton or, or more, you know, sort of more organic. I don't want to say I don't want to recommend specific uh, brands, but they must be natural or cotton based products. And there are a lot of those around. Um, also, avoid the Bulkiness of of pads, you know, because they these are young teens. They're active. They're doing their own thing. Yes. And the last thing they want to be feeling is that oh my god, I'm sitting on a cushion. So really look at even though we tell our uh, you know our parents to to sort of avoid the ultra thin products because those do not always come in natural or cotton based um, materials. Use as thin as possible um, a, a natural product. Um, And that helps them a lot. And there's some great
1: period pants on the market now, which I know are really, really popular as well. I'm
2: so glad you mentioned that because period pads take away all this problem that I'm telling you about, about the thinness and the naturalness, because they're cotton. Yeah
1: um and that would be great we've had a message here from um asha saying hi both my daughter's 11 and a half she got her first period beginning of september fairly light on and off for eight to ten days last week she had it again but much heavier she's crying saying she wants to be a little girl again and um, before she was saying it'd be nice to be a preteen <laughs> yeah um i wonder now um is it normal for it to be heavy and how long will it take to settle down Yes, such a lovely question. So typically, this
2: period where they first start their periods right up until the age of 18, actually, it's associated with menstrual cycles that do not have, uh, you know, there's no ovulation in that menstrual cycle, we call them anovulatory cycles. Now anovulatory cycles are typically quite irregular and erratic and they can be painful and they cannot be painful at the same time. The pain from an anovulatory cycle actually doesn't come from anything to do with ovulation. It just comes with the fact that if the lining of the womb is shedding a lot of itself at that particular point because, you know, the period could be delayed by one week or delayed by two weeks, the menstrual lining, the lining of the womb is still getting thicker and thicker. So you would expect a heavier and more painful period because the uterus will be much more contractile so that's why it gets painful i think for this um, listener really sit with your daughter look at the biology of it because the more they understand what is going on in their bodies the more they understand that one month it could be absolutely a dream and then the next month it could be horrific And this can go on right up until the age of 18. And they just have to understand that it is completely normal.
1: Okay, really hope that helps. We've um, had a a voice note from sleep consultant, Julie Mallon, who's been in touch talking about the impact of melatonin on the way our girls develop. We know that there is increasing use of melatonin now amongst children, but what parents really need to know is that melatonin is a hormone. So the primary concern is that persistent use could delay puberty or can cause premature sexual development. So is this what could be adding to the increase in puberty among younger children? So to remind ourselves that melatonin is a hormone and it can disrupt the endocrine centre within the brain, which is what influences uh, puberty. Sleep consultant Julie Malin, a really um well-timed reminder about the fact that melatonin is indeed a hormone and it can be very disruptive um and we are very (laughs) i know some of us love a melatonin gummy for our kids but it should be you know administered responsibly um a message here saying on the topic of periods what are your experts thoughts on menstrual cups especially in the early ages thank you for these topics as a dad i really appreciate the help and information
2: that is a lovely question because menstrual cups is something that is really out there. Everybody's talking about it because it completely removes the issue of sustainability. It's better for the environment um, and uh, less likely to cause, you know, sort of reactions that we get with with, with uh, our menstrual hygiene products. The issue is you've got to look at your daughter and you've got to look at that person individually. If your child is someone who really is um you know able to not be squirmish mm-hmm. be able to um understand the mechanism of 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 actually inserting a menstrual cup can be trusted um, to wash her hands before during absolutely or absolutely before and after etc um it's something that can be introduced definitely with uh, once the period starts sort of in in much younger uh, younger women the issue is and the worry that I get from my pa- my patients is they ask me, is this going to affect the hymen? Are they going to break their hymen mm. if they use a menstrual cup? And the answer is an absolute no. It doesn't reach the the hymen. It sits midway um, and uh, below the hymen. So it is technically safe. It's just that it can be fiddly for a young person to be able to use a menstrual cup properly, Uh be hygienic about it be fast about it um and uh, be confident about mm-hmm. it and that's why traditionally menstrual cups are generally used for are used in um, older women usually women who've already had babies before actually yeah and, and that who period's are kind more more of comfortable with their
1: bodies and uh, you were a bit perhaps a bit more regular as absolutely well. okay
0: this content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment
1: Dr. Mariam Awatai is with us today. She is a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist. She has her own clinic in Healthcare City, and we're going to have a bit of a quick fire round on the text line. Um, and one final question, um, which I love from the men folk out there, saying, How do you explain periods and menstrual health of a daughter to a son? I want to raise him to be an understanding brother and man for the future by removing the stigma men have about this topic. If I had an applause button, I'd be pressing it right now because. Back in my day, but you know, in the 90s, um, yeah. it was boys, you go out and play football, yes. girls, you go to the home ec room, you're going to learn about periods. I don't know when the boys learned about yeah. nighttime emissions and voices breaking and shaving. I have no idea. Mm. Much the same as my husband. I think he genuinely learned a lot in our antenatal classes about pregnancy because so he hadn't learned it at school. And I, I would guess that's probably going to be the case here in the UAE as well. So. What would some of your wise words, and I ask you this as mm. a gynecologist, but also as a mum yes. of, a, of a boy and a girl? Yes, absolutely, Helen. I'm, I'm so grateful for that question um, because it's something
2: that is core. Really, there is no point educating just the girls and not the boys and vice versa about each other. You know, they live in a, in a, in a world where there are boys and girls. Now, for, for, for boys, really, when you are talking about periods with boys... It's just, it's simple. It's straightforward. Don't make it too complicated. Just let them understand that when a woman or a girl reaches her puberty, these are the things that are going to happen. And also probably at the same time, have an idea of what happens to boys as well mm-hmm. at the at the time of puberty. Once you tell them about the usual secondary sexual characteristics and all of that, keep it simple and just say, look, women... Girls are born with about three million eggs from the start. These eggs are always going to be, you know, they're, they're quiescent. They're not, they're not actually going to be working until puberty. Once puberty occurs, every month, a small collection of these eggs are going to start developing. And when they do, they send out signals. Um, The brain actually controls all of this. It's not actually only at the ovarian, at the the level of the ovary. The brain actually regulates what happens in the menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And female brains will produce certain amounts of hormones or regulatory hormones, which will talk. We call this the pituitary gland, which will talk to the ovaries, the ovaries will also respond by developing and producing their own types of hormones, which is estrogens and progestogens. And this also then talks to the uterus, the body of the uterus, the lining of the uterus, which then responds by thickening and becoming more vascular. If you keep it simple and almost scientific, like matter of fact, boys respond to this absolutely well they mm. understand it in fact they become empathetic because I have a, they? I yeah, so. yeah they, they do I have a son and a, and a daughter and I remember when I was talking to my son about menstrual m- the menstrual cycle in fact I was one of the naughty parents I forgot he asked me <laughs> and I said okay <laughs> I'm sorry I'm going to talk to you about the menstrual cycle I sat him down and I I just drew most of the stuff drew the picture and and showed him what happened and sh- and then he and then honestly allow the question allow that session to be totally you know sort of b- both of you are very open mm. answer his questions don't always let it be a lecture. It's got to be back and forth. Let them ask those questions. If you're not sure about it,
1: then tell them, I'm not so sure about it. I'm going to go check it. And check together. And not just a one off. I think that's been something that's really important exactly. with mine is like, we're not just going to sit down at the table and talk about puberty. It's like an ongoing it's discussion. An ongoing Have thing. a think. If anything comes up, no, you can. Talk uh, to I've me. just Absolutely. sent to this listener um, a little reel that I did a few weeks ago on books about growing up in puberty, and ones were like really little ones you know two yeah. to five one is for that kind of five to eight and one is for eight and upwards now the older Excellent. book is aimed at girls because i have daughters but if you want those three book recommendations just send me the word book i'll send you the reel so you can watch it easy enough but i think Excellent. that can be a really useful tool just Very sitting useful. together and having a chat to the text line we go dr Miriam a message from grace saying when menopause is ending how do you know when it's gone for good it's an excellent question because it keeps coming and going. But it's not coming and going. It's the climacteric. Like we talked about uh, earlier on,
2: the menstrual uh, menopause is not a finite number. It's on average, it's about 51, but it's defined by the complete cessation of periods. Periods have to stop for 12 consecutive months. Now, any bleeding that occurs after 12 months is called postmenopausal bleeding and this is a red flag you cannot ignore postmenopausal bleeding so as long as that bleeding irregularity pattern or irregular pattern is occurring within 12 months Mm -hmm. that's fine but if you stop your periods for up to 12 months and then you get any bleeding you must come and get checked out because postmenopausal bleeding can flag up some very serious problems like endometrial cancer and hyperplasia and sometimes pollen simpler things like polyps so that's it in a nutshell it stops after 12 months it should
1: not come back after 12 months hope that helps grace um no name on this one saying hi doctor is it normal to be a bit more emotional and even have some pain or bleeding around ovulation absolutely it is totally normal to do that. It is totally normal to have
2: what we call ovulation pain. It's total norm, totally normal to have a little bit of pink, stroke, red spotting uh, during the ovulation period, and of course during the ovulation periods, you've got. Huge spikes in hormones, actually. Your progesterone goes up, your LH goes up, you've got the surge. There's a lot of hormonal activity, and this can uh, affect moods. So, yes, completely normal.
1: Um, G says, hi, both. My ferritin has been low for years. It's currently 12, with my hemoglobin also low as well. Doctor thinks the sudden low hemoglobin could be down to recent blood clotting in my period and wants me to try the Marina coil to stop them. I'm 42, no kids, so I'm not bothered about reproductive effects, but I am worried about hormones on foreign bodies inside me would welcome a second opinion. Fantastic question. So the Mirena IUCD,
2: it's just a coil that contains a hormone called le- levonorgestrel, which is a progestogen. It has really small amounts of this progestogen. So all the side effects that tend to occur with pills, the combined oral contraceptive pills or other hormonal pills that we take by mouth is not there with the Mirena IUS. There are some side effects with it and it can cause troublesome spotting for up to about 90 days and it can be a bit annoying when you're having it put in. But the, the opinion I want to give you is that you really are one of the p- women that I would definitely recommend having a myrena iOS because it you have uh, your hemoglobin is already low the ferritin is very low um, y- y- you are. Uh, uh, you know, you're, you're open to the idea of having an, o, uh, an IUCD in, in in situ. Really, what it does is it absolutely minimizes your blood flow, takes away all the worry about remembering to take a pill or not remembering to take a pill, gives you contraceptive privacy if you need it. And uh, it's uh, it's a myth to say that Mirena IUS causes problems. It does have its side effects. These side effects are usually quite self-limiting. Um And if the woman tolerates it, this is a good way okay
1: we've run out of time we haven't run out of questions so will you come back <laughs> Anytime okay, you have me, amazing. Helen, definitely. It's always a pleasure. In the meantime, though, you can find Dr. Mariam there. She's got her own clinic in Healthcare City, Dr. Mariam Avatai, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist. If you want her details, send me the word doctor. And if you want my recommendations on child-friendly books about growing up and puberty, send me the word book. And we'd be very happy to help. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Helen. Always Thank you for having me. an
0: absolute pleasure. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice Diagnosis or treatment.
1: It's October, globally recognized as Pink Month, a dedicated time for raising awareness around breast cancer. And I'm not talking about shops selling. Random pink stuff with absolutely no proceeds going to charity. I am talking about examination, about early prevention, about the fact and hearing stories too. So if you want to share yours, you're more than welcome to reach out to us. One man who is passionate about highlighting this is Professor Hamid Al Shamzi, the Director of Oncology Services at Bajil Holdings. He's an expert in the field of oncology and has made significant contributions to cancer research, including co authoring a book called Cancer in the Arab World. He joins us now live. How are you, Professor?
3: I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for having me.
1: Well, Thank you for your contributions thus far and for joining us on today's show. I'm, I would love to start with you, if you don't mind. Are you able to share what attracted you to this field of study? What is it that, about breast cancer and the work up to this point and the future work that you feel is so important?
3: Well, to be honest, um, the reality is cancer is one of the most leading causes of death worldwide, and this is the third leading cause of death in UAE. So certainly the 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 oncology field has been very exciting for me to try to understand what are the rationale behind this cancer, how can we fight cancer, how can we prevent cancer, and most importantly, how can we cure cancer? Mm -hmm. Certainly we have so many challenges and as you can see from the news, there is something new and exciting every single day. If we look at the oncology field today, Uh, We are more successful than ever uh, when we are fighting cancer, but we still have a long way to go trying to cure cancer, especially in advanced stages. Mm -hmm.
1: I think, you know, sadly, everyone listening today has been touched by cancer in in some way, whether it is directly or indirectly. And, you know, this month is really important, significant to me. my, My best friend right now has stage four breast cancer. And we had some good news last week, which is that one of the lines of treatment you know she's never going to get better, unfortunately, and it has spread to her femur and it's in her her lungs as well. But the line of treatment she's got is is slowing things down, and this was a huge sigh of relief. You know she's been getting, as I'm sure lots of um, lots of cancer warriors are experiencing that that anxiety, And she'd messaged me saying, you know, we've got the scans on Tuesday, but I'll tell you on Thursday how it's going. So. It was such a moment of relief to think that, my goodness, the work that's being done and these drug trials that she's been so brave enough to participate in are going some way to, to having a bit more time with her. So I just want to say a personal thank you, I guess, to, to you and, and everyone working in this field so families can stay together, even if just a little bit longer. Um, can we bring it to the region Um, Professor, I I understand you recently conducted the largest study on breast cancer here in the UAE. Can you tell us some of the highlights of that study, some of the big takeaways for us?
3: Certainly, uh, certainly. Um, First of all, um, uh, breast cancer remains the most common cancer worldwide and it's the same at the level of UAE and also the GCC. In 2019, there were around 883 cases reported in the UAE uh, and they were the majority actually were expats and only 209 patients were from the UAE nationals and it's around 20% of all cancers in UAE are attributed to breast cancer with around 11% or let's say 10% 10% to make it simple are causing death uh, from from that unfortunately 40% uh, or around one out of five of these patients are, are actually under the age of, uh, of uh, 40, oh which is really significant. Uh, what we see here in reality is we're seeing more and more young females. Uh, they are at the age of having families, reproduction, production, pregnancy, and they're getting cancer. We still don't know why. And again, this is a, a global phenomenon, not only UAE or the GCC. And this is something we're trying to understand why we're getting more and more females that having uh, breast cancer in our region. Having said that, we are still also seeing more aggressive cancer in younger female and more advanced diseases because most physicians and even patients, they don't think about them having breast cancer because they're still young we tend to think about cancer in general or breast cancer in older females, which is not true.
1: Mm-hmm, that's right. And also in men, you know, we've, uh, we've heard this, um, this awareness is, is absolutely just as, just as valid. Um, can I ask you then about when the cancer tends to be detected? You, you're talking there about advanced stages. Um, what role does that have um, on outcome, on treatment and, um, and really what, what's possible in clinic?
3: Well, again, the whole idea from having the pink October is trying to increase the awareness about early detection. Most people think that, you know, I will not go to the doctor or I will not go and get checked unless I have symptoms. The reality is if you have an early cancer, you will have no symptoms for maybe months or years. And hence, if you don't have any symptoms, we want to go and check because maybe you have a cancer that's growing slowly, it's still early stages, which can be curable the success rate of cancer being cured uh, especially breast cancer can reach up to 90 or 95% in early stages versus for advanced stages it may not exceed more than 5 or even 10% at the best time mm. so we're trying to uh, you know uh, um, de- diagnose cancer early through the early detection screening when there are no symptoms so the success rate is even higher
1: We're joining us live, uh, Director of Oncology Services for Jubil Jubil Holding. Um, We've got Professor Hamid Al-Shamsi with us today.
3: This
0: content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis.
1: Joining us live on the line from Bajil Holdings, the Director of Oncology Service, Professor Hamid Al Shamzi. Number of messages coming in for you. So, we're going to be trying to help out as many people as possible, not just this afternoon, but throughout the whole month of October as we, of course, keep the conversation going, raising awareness around breast cancer in the region and beyond. Um, You've also had a recent publication that looked at breast cancer in the Gulf region, Professor, and I wondered if you are able to tell us some of your big takeaways from that. Was there anything that surprised you about those findings?
3: Well, actually, our estimate that, um, and this could sound a little bit alarming, but I don't want anybody to be alarmed uh, we are anticipating an increase by around 200 to 300% of, breast, of cancer in general by 2040. Wow. Again, this sounds very alarming. And, yes. and if you look, uh, look uh, back in time in UAE in the 1990s and 2000, this happened actually. We have already you know, increased by 300 400%. So we'll continue to see increasing in number of uh, cancers in general, and especially breast cancer, because again, this is the most common cancer. The problem is we don't know or understand exactly what are the other causes of cancer. We know, you know, smoking, obesity, you know, family history can contribute to cancers in general and also breast cancer. But there are still so many other factors that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. So even though we try to prevent cancer from happening, there will be a significant number of people that having cancer without any risk factors having cancer. So... Our only tool to, uh, you know, fight this cancer and reduce the morbidity and morta- mortality is by early screening and detection.
1: Professor, you mentioned lifestyle factors there, and we've got Azu on the line now, who's got a question about food. Azu, can you explain what's on your mind? Perhaps Professor can help you out.
4: Hello, uh, thank you so much for having me online. Um, I just wanted to know: uh, is there any specific? Um, diet that we should follow um, or any any kind of food that should be followed uh, should be avoided when it comes to prevention of the pre- breast cancer.
1: Great question. And when my dad was going through chemo doctor, he, he read all the books. You know, he was reading about turmeric, about raw cauliflower and garlic. Um, and I wondered if there was anything, whether it's cancer or breast cancer in particular, that you think should be encouraged or avoided. Great question from Azu.
3: Okay, so this is a very common question that we get on uh, almost every single day from patients who are trying to prevent cancer or pa- cancer recurrence or the ones who are actually getting chemotherapy or treatment. So basically, we encourage a healthy diet. Healthy diet, we all know what's a healthy diet, but it's very difficult for anyone to adhere to this healthy diet, trying to reduce the meat intake, not to prevent or to stop meat eating. No, you can eat some meat with some with some you know limitations you can eat uh, chicken and increase your fish intake and definitely vegetables anything that's fast food related or you know oily food we have to try to avoid as much as possible again obesity is related to the lifestyle and food intake and if you have an obesity or if your diet is not appropriate you uh, you can increase your risk of cancer by three, 13 different type of cancers so healthy moderate Mostly Mediterranean diet is the appropriate diet for patients Mm -hmm. with cancer.
1: And what about going through chemo? Is there anything that can be particularly helpful or detrimental to that treatment on on the food and lifestyle front, Professor?
3: Well, there are so many methods about, you know, stopping this and that. But to be honest with you, there is nothing scientific behind stopping specific type of kind of food. For example, you will hear lots about, you know, stopping sugar or stopping protein or yogurt, which will help you to boost your body to fight cancer without uh, having the side effects from chemotherapy. It's not true. Again, it will be the same simple message. Healthy vegetarian lifestyle uh, diet is the appropriate one for cancer patient. There is no restrictions for any specific food. Uh, it's just, you know, increasing your uh, intake of the healthy food, including vegetables and fish, and reducing the meat intake.
1: Thank you, Professor, and uh, and thank you, Azu. Great question. And um, we've had a message here saying, how effective is immunotherapy in breast cancer treatment? What have you seen um, in clinic and uh, in research, Doctor?
3: Well, actually, we are using immunotherapy for patients with breast cancer, and we're seeing a very good responses in patients with early and intermediate risk a patient with a triple negative breast cancer, which is uh, considered to be one of the most aggressive type of cancer, actually you've been using this for the last two years or so in, in our patient here in the UAE, and we're, we're, having, we're seeing actually excellent responses. Uh, we're also using the uh, immunotherapy for advanced breast cancer, but as you mentioned earlier, when you have an advanced cancer, we're trying to control the disease as long as possible, A cure can happen. We do have some patients with advanced cancer, especially breast cancer, who have been cured from from them, but they are the minority. Mm -hmm. But immunotherapy actually are are, are adding a lot to our tools in fighting and controlling cancer, especially in early stages.
1: Joining us now, Professor Hamid Al-Shamzi, the Director of Oncology Services at Bajil Holding. Um, A message here in No Name and you can always get in touch anonymously. And I don't know what this is, Professor, so I'm hoping you do. Can you explain what a print test is? I don't know. I've never heard of this. What is it?
3: Okay, so when you have a patient with early breast cancer uh, who has a hormone receptor positive uh, and they finish their surgery, the question is going to be after surgery, do they need chemotherapy? And basically, the motherprint is around 70 genes that have been uh, studied in, in the lab and they've been found to correlate with the recurrence risk. So if you have a score that's high based on these genes, that's when you have a higher risk of recurrence. So we tend to give you chemotherapy. If your score is low, this will save you from chemotherapy because most likely you will not benefit from chemotherapy because your risk of recurrence is low. So basically, it's a tool that we use in practice to assist the patient's need for chemotherapy and the risk for recurrence from their breast cancer.
1: Thank you. Great question. And um, every day is a school day. Um, a message here saying, can he please talk about HRT? And risk for women. Now this is a real hot topic and we have just been yeah. addressing menopause more and more and rightly so on the show. And for many, HRT is and feels like a lifesaver for so many menopause symptoms, both physical and emotional. But there are still some risks associated that need to be explored. Is there anything that you can speak to on that, please, yes, Professor?
3: Certainly this this has been a very hot topic since the eighties and the nineties and certainly this is something that we get asked about all the time. The message will be is try to reduce your HRT treatment as as short as possible. Certainly, there are some studies that, you know, connecting strongly with HRT exposure and breast cancer. So what the the simple message is, we know it's very important for so many females who are going through the menopause, try to use it for a minimum period of time uh, without prolonged exposure.
1: I think that's um, really, really wise words. And having a doctor that you trust, someone you can have open conversations with um, is so, so crucial. Professor, thank you so much for your time today. Really value your expertise, especially relating to the Arab region. Some of those numbers you're talking about just absolutely staggering. But we do have an element of control um, in all types of cancer uh, when it comes to that early prevention, catching it early. and. You know, this month is absolutely about that, having conversations that we might find upsetting, we might find uncomfortable. Um, I'm sure no one really relishes going in for a mammogram, but my goodness, it can be it can be absolutely life-saving. Um, Professor, if anyone wants to read your work and research or find out more about the work you do at Bajil Holding, what's the best way of getting in touch and uh, exploring the topic further?
3: You can Google Cancer in the Arab World, and the book has been available for free. It has been downloaded more than 380,000 times to be the most downloaded medical book in the Middle East in 2022.
1: Wow. Professor Hamed Al-Shamsi, thank you so much for your time and all of the work you've been doing um, on the topic of cancer in the region and beyond. Really, really appreciate it. Professor Hamed Al-Shamsi, Director of Oncology Services at Abidjel Holding, Cancer in the Arab World. My goodness rightfully so hundreds of thousands of downloads and if you want to get hands on that you can just send me the word link and i will send you that link so you can read more and don't forget we will be continuing the conversation around breast cancer throughout the month with a whole range of experts if we weren't able to get to your question today we will no doubt have someone to help you out over the coming days and weeks
0: this content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment
1: I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to be joined this afternoon by Madeline Mendy, family lawyer extraordinaire. That's not what it says on her business cards, but that's how I always introduce you. How are you?
5: I'm great. Thank you.
1: Prepare for a busy one. Um, We've had a lot of messages through both social media and through 4001. Um, You've got a number of things that you want to be addressing before we get to the text line. Um, The first one is no fault divorce. Tell us a little bit about that, saying you don't have to stay married. What's that about? Yes,
5: historically, uh, in Dubai, when you wanted to get a divorce, you needed to show a reason why you wanted to get a divorce. Of course, what would count as a a reason? um, So domestic violence could have been a ground. If we look into the Muslim side, uh, the fact that your husband is not paying your maintenance uh, is a ground. But there had to be a fundamental reason why you wanted to get divorced. Now, if you're non-Muslim... Uh, you are entitled to apply for a divorce based on the fact that you believe that your marriage is broken down mm-hmm. and they want to keep you married. Whereby before uh you need a reason. That's why they now call them no fault divorce. You don't have to show a reason to get divorced. I'm not encouraging people to get divorced, but I But are I'm you trying. seeing an increase because
1: of this change?
5: You 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 are seeing a. Uh, an increase but for the wrong reasons because of course it provides you with the divorce but the children and the finances are not settled so you are divorced but your finances and anything that happens to the children is not settled
1: yet Mm -hmm. so it's a bit back to front now last time you were in the studio we ended up having an entire hour on divorce and i realized the next day why that was because apparently the first monday in september is the busiest day for divorce lawyers (laughs) So we can, of course, help with divorce today. We've had a number of messages on this topic, but we've got all sorts to be talking about. One other um, note that you sent over to us earlier today that made me go, what? Was leaving children overnight with nannies. You are breaking the law. What do we need to know?
5: You need to know that as a parent, um, if you have a child that is younger than 16, that child cannot be left unattended with another adult, other than the parent, or uh, um, a trusted uh, adult. So I mean, friends, if he's staying with friends overnight, but you certainly can't leave him with the nanny or leave her with the nanny overnight, especially for prolonged periods of times. I've had clients come through where either they were doing that they were traveling and leaving the children alone. Or their partner was, was or ex-partner was traveling and leaving the child, the child alone with the nanny. You can't do that and you're breaking the law.
1: I don't understand the distinction, though, because, I mean, I'm thinking about our nanny who's been with us for nine years and is one of the most trusted, essential parts of our life. Yes. How is it different to, for, for my child to go on a sleepover, for example, with a family friend, as opposed to Loretta looking after them at home?
5: It's mainly parental responsibility. That's the problem. Something, God forbid, something happens to the children, mm-hmm. uh, And Loretta has to take them to the hospital. Someone is going to have to make a decision there. And generally, it has to be one of the parents. So ideally, it should be with one of the parents left. If it's left with a friend, um, it still has more weight than the nanny because the nanny would not have a right,
1: decision-making right on the children. Wow. Okay. This is every day's a school day. I'm just thinking back. We haven't done it. Um, but It happens a lot. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. I mean, nannies are part of our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Happens a lot. Madeline Mandy with us today and many of the messages are coming in anonymously. Message here from S saying, um, joint property in two names, husband and wife. Husband is the breadwinner and and pays in full for the mortgage. If they divorce, can he claim the property? Right. So if they divorce in England, not.
5: But if they divorce in Dubai, technically he can. But it would be a very difficult one, especially if it's the matrimonial home. Because the court will expect that the matrimonial home has been bought in, in both names, where he's paying for the mortgage, maybe she's looking after the property and looking after the children. Uh, so as part of the divorce process, the court will not divide the property mm-hmm. because both of, their, both of their names are in the Dubai land department. What the person can do is they can go and make a claim, a civil claim against the other spouse to say, right, I've been paying the mortgage, I should be having the property. But it's a very,
1: very, very difficult argument to make.
5: Nearly impossible
1: so for couples looking at buying property in the UAE and we always you know go into marriages and we always go into these decisions not expecting divorce but for protection would you always advise both names then Always. always 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 put joint names there you go. That was, you didn't even let me finish the answer. No. Nope. The Madeleine <laughs> Mandy with us today, decisive with her insights. Up next, we're going to be talking bullying in school. Have you seen your school's child protection policy? And we've had a message here, Anonymous, saying, what are our rights if our child was filmed hitting another child at school? He's 15 and the other parents want to press charges. We'll be talking about that age group and some of the complications around that message. <laughs> Family law expert Madeleine Mendy with us through until five o'clock today. And we can talk pre and post-naps. We're going to be having a bit of a divorce clinic after half past. But right now I want to talk about bullying um, and I guess child protection policies. What are some of the questions parents should be asking of their school? Or what do we need to know with our child's safety front and centre?
5: I think the first thing to know is what is the school's view on child protection? Mm -hmm. A lot of schools in Dubai do not have child protection policies. or if they do, they're a simple tick box exercise. And I think it's important to know what is the school's view on bullying, if your child is a victim of bullying, but also if your child is a perpetrator of bullying. What support is there in the school if the child is a victim of bullying or even... Bullying in school, but also outside. So if the child is is a victim of abuse outside of the school, could be at home by one of the other parents, how would the school address that? I think those are fundamental questions. The safeguarding policies. And and
1: safeguarding can take many forms. But bullying is the one that is unfortunately probably the most frequent. And schools can say all they like, there's no bullying in our school. Not the case. Speaking of which, a message on this topic. Anonymous, and as I always say, you can be completely anonymous if you prefer, saying, what are our rights if our child was filmed hitting another child at school? He's 15. Hospital wasn't needed, but it's obviously unacceptable. The parents want to contact the police and press charges, and the school is going to discipline too, as are we. We're just not sure of the law. Now, there's a couple of angles in here and I'm not quite sure what this listener's getting at, whether it's what are our rights in terms of our child was filmed or what are our rights or what can we expect from the parents pressing charges with the police? Could we address both yes. of that? So that yes. Okay?
5: I mean, in terms of the child being filmed without his consent, that is against the law. Nobody in the UAE can be filmed without their express consent. You'll have to check the school policy in terms of also filming because it's a private it's a it's private ground, so you'll mm-hmm. have to check the the school policy. But generally, that's the law. You can't be filmed uh, without your consent. In terms of now the child, I'm assuming it's another child that he's been fighting with. If the school is already uh, taking disciplinary measures and the parents themselves are on board with that, I doubt that the police will uh, will press charges because yes, assault could have taken place, and that is a crime bringing the matter to the police and then later prosecution, it needs to be a matter that is worth prosecuting. If we start prosecuting, unfortunately, and I'm not negating what this this boy has done, but if we are starting to prosecute every fight in schools, well... The, the schools, the, the court will be inundated with work.
1: Can I take it a step further and let's say it was serious and let's say there was a serious injury that was a result of this and this isn't the case in this situation um, and it was necessary for the police to get involved and the parents did want to press charges. Would a 15-year-old have a record here in the UAE?
5: No, generally, you you you're, you're, although it is on your record, but by the time you reach the majority, which is 21 here in the UAE, not 18, Uh, and no incidents have been perpetrated, that record gets uh, cleaned up.
1: Okay, Madeline, Mandy with us today. Um, Staying with child protection, a question from Eden that came through on my social media early today, saying, what do I do if I see a car next to me with a child not strapped in? Yesterday, one driver had a toddler on his lap while driving. So dangerous. It gives me like (laughs) visceral (laughs) kind of... Oh, drives me absolutely mental. What What do we do? What does the law say?
5: I, the law says now that you are able to report incidents. The problem is it, it shouldn't conflict with the law of privacy of you taking a picture uh, of those individuals. But you have the Dubai Police app. You can either, once you're in a safe place, report the car and report the location they'll be able to see on CCTV or um, if you can, call the police, the non-emergency number and, and ask them what should be done. But generally, if, if a, a crime, I put that in inverted comma, is, is reported, the police will send notifications to the drivers mm-hmm. pretty soon.
1: I just thought we were getting better at this.
5: We were. I remember there was a campaign a few years ago on that.
1: Well, we, um, ha- we you know we are talking now on Dubai Eye about making sure that children in the front seat are, you know, over the age of ten. You know, and it, it is it is really important, but it's something that drives me as a parent really, really makes me incredibly angry because a lot of the when and I've I've broached this with a few parents in my time. We, you know, had a little chat <laughs> at the traffic lights. And the response that I've had a number of times is, oh, they don't like being in their car seat. To which I say, tough. You know, I'm sorry. It's not. It's, it's so rarely a cost thing, and I would buy you. No. I will buy you a car seat if you can't afford one. Um, but if you're driving that car, I'm guessing yes. you can probably afford 200 euros for a car seat. But it, it often comes down to is, oh, they don't like being strapped in.
5: And it's not a question of choice; it's a question of safety. Not just for the child, but as a driver, you're also distracted.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Because you know, you think about this situation that Eden's been in touch. You know, a toddler on the lap of the driver. You know, that toddler can be distracting the driver and causing an accident. Yes. Bringing, you know, another car in the mix there. I don't know. I think it's just hard because, as a parent, you know, you want your, your child to be happy, and you don't want them to be crying in a car seat. Your but you want them to be safe. safe. So, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yes. We could go on. Okay. Right. We have got um, a number of messages around divorce, which we're going to get through um, as as many as we can. We've also had a message about a long term partnership. Do you have any right to his pension if you've never been married? Madam Mandy is with us in the studio. Thank you. Family Law on the show this afternoon, Madeline Mandy on hand to help is your free legal clinic. How busy are you on the divorce front right now, Madeline? Extremely busy. Extremely busy. And can I ask, and I'm obviously not asking you to divulge, but I am a nosy person. Um, What are some of the most common causes, reasons that you're seeing in the UAE?
5: By far, by far, adultery. Infidelity? Yes, infidelity is one of the main reasons uh but also we seem and 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 when i say that people are thinking well uh, it's because of of where we are but we forget that a lot of people got married here to come here 10 years ago simply because they had to be married to come mm-hmm. and live together so maybe they were not a strong relationship to start off with or people got married because the the girlfriend got pregnant uh very shaky relationships which with time develop and now
1: uh, are breaking down You're the first person to say that before people come and see you as a divorce lawyer, they should go and see a marriage counsellor. Yes. Um, So if you've got any questions relating to divorce, please don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, to the text line we go. Um, No name on this one saying, to make a very long story short, after many years of um, issues in our marriage and trying to make it work, the final straw came earlier this year when my husband lied about ending his affair. He didn't. And of course, I found out. He promised he'd always provide and take care of me and the children. I stopped working to be a stay at home mum. Now, as divorce is inevitable, things are getting nasty, and he's asking that I support myself and help contribute to household and children expenses. What he's asking is not going to be possible without a full time job. I don't have an issue with working as long as we divide the time with the children equally. As it stands, he has them one evening a week and every other weekend. What he's suggesting is that we continue with this arrangement, but I also work full time. How is this fair? I, what I'd like to know, what are my rights as an expat woman slash stay-at-home mum?
5: Right. Well, there are two jurisdictions here. It will be her home jurisdiction she needs to look at and the UAE jurisdiction. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago, if you are divorcing in the UAE, if the assets are not in joint name, you don't get a division of assets. So I would look at the home jurisdiction. The home jurisdiction often takes into account the fact that one of the parties has in essence, sacrifice their career to stay at home and look after the children. And they'll provide you with spousal maintenance uh, to compensate you for that time. But they will also expect you to go into employment. Um, they will, all, And they will, more importantly, take into account the time that you have with the children. If, the, if you're the children's primary carer, you won't be expected to go into full-time employment until they reach a certain age. It could be until they start secondary school. Mm-hmm. That's, if we look at it from an English perspective, in terms of the UAE court, your husband would be expected to support the children. And in principle, both parties are supposed to have the children 50-50. If you're continuing with that setup and you're not able to find employment, then he will, be, he will have to pay for the lion's share of the children's expenses.
1: Um, we're talking about here as a stay-at-home mum. Have you had many cases of stay-at-home dads and is there any kind of change in the law when that's the case?
5: I've had a few of those uh, and, and, and they were the heartbreaking ones because it was before the 1st of February where dad was the primary carer for the children and of course prior to the 1st of February automatically the mother had custody of those children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had fathers who all of the sudden were had this bond that they developed from a young age with their child uh, broken but also financially because uh, here we expect the husband to pay, uh, he then had to get up and go and find employment to pay for his child, but also for himself. Whereby, if it was in another jurisdiction, it would be provided with parcel maintenance.
1: Madeleine Mundy with us today. Now, moving away from marriage, but certainly partnership, a message here saying, Hi, I've split with my partner of 20 years, We've got two children under the age of 13. Specifically, do I have any rights to his pension, never married and were UK passport holders?
5: If you're going through the English, the UAE court, the short answer to that is no. If you're not married, you have no no marital rights. In essence, the same way as the English court. Uh, if you're not married, then you, you you don't have any
1: rights. Can you live here and um, as an unmarried couple now with with older children? I'm not talking about necessarily giving birth out of wedlock in the UAE, but. Could a couple move here from the UK, for example, unmarried with kids in their teens? And is that still A-OK in the eyes of the law?
5: It, it is OK. You're now the law has changed for, non, uh, for non-Muslims. You are able to live in the UAE without being married as long as you're cons- both consenting adults. And you are also able to have children out of wedlock uh, as long as you're non-Muslim and you can live here.
1: So, th- so this message here about separating after 20 years, it's not a divorce we're talking about because there's no marriage. But there's no. There would be no right to the other one's assets because of that lack of document.
5: In in the UAE, even if there was, um, even if there was a marriage, you wouldn't have a right to the pension because it's not in joint names. But if it was in your home jurisdiction, you should be able. Not sorry, not in joint names. There's no marital pot. in In, in other jurisdiction, non Islamic jurisdiction, you have a marital pot that you split. Here you don't.
1: Okay. Rach saying, hi, ladies, please, can you help? A good friend of mine needs a recommendation of a good family lawyer with experience with local courts. She and her husband, both British, have started divorce proceedings in the UK, but now her husband has decided he wants to get divorced here and is seeking full custody of their son. Her son has lived with her the whole time they've been separated. He's on her visa. The father has popped in and out of the boy's life, so it would be devastating for her and the boy if the father was awarded custody. So what does the law say in, in that respect? It um, sounds like w- what, what I'm really getting at is, is it, is it in the husband's interest to get divorced here rather than the UK if he is seeking full custody?
5: It depends on their religion. So how, how old did you say the boy was? Um, 11. 11. So that, that's the cutoff age. If you're Muslim and you are a man, you can ask for custody of your son if he's 11, you have two conditions to fulfill. The first one is you either need to be remarried or have your mum or your sister living with you. And the second condition is you need to show that the mother is
1: not a fit parent to look after that child. Here's my question on this. And we've had um, a number of messages on this topic in the past. I've never really understood the answer. If you want to prove that she is a quote-unquote unfit mother, How do you do that? How do you quantify and prove that? Right.
5: I I, I won't tell you how I do it per se, but I'll tell you some of the cases I've come across where uh, previously you've had pictures of mothers um, in bikini taken from social media with them enjoying a glass of wine, for example. Uh, Recently, I've had uh, pictures of a mother uh, fully engaged in... um, I not call it sexual activities, but clothes, mm-hmm. pictures of her. Um, you need to show also, for example, for a child, if his school attendance is affected, if the child himself speaks to a school psychologist and says he's struggling with mom because mum is never at home, she's parting. There are different things you can look into to show that someone is not fit, but mainly is the child's welfare. And can it work? It. Can it
1: work in the other sense as well. A, a mum looking to, to prove that of the father, or
5: yes, but generally, still, even if it says fifty fifty, mother is awarded the majority of the
1: custody. So those arguments are normally the other way around. Right. We've run out of time, Madeline Mendy. I've got some Ed Sheeran for you today. Um, thank you so much for your time today. And if anyone wants to contact you, what's the best way of getting in touch? You can contact us on our Instagram
5: page, Madeline Mendy Legal. Or email us on the work email. Thank you so much
1: for your time. I know you're busy. Are you going back to work? Yes, I am. Yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really appreciate it. Madeline Mandy with us this afternoon talking family law. Mm -hmm. Call it a hunch, call it intuition, call it a knowing. Sometimes we have a feeling that we just can't ignore. So how strong is your intuition? Would you know when to trust it? Our next guest is going to be teaching us, maybe testing us. Dua Awad is a geneticist, a hypnotherapist, a Reiki master, NLP practitioner. And she's holding a workshop next week called The Path to 88, From Intuition to Abundance. It's about helping people develop their intuition to a level where you well, you begin to use it in your personal as well as professional lives. How are you? Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, can I ask you, do you tend to have pretty good intuition? Do you, do you trust yours? Absolutely. Absolutely. And where do you think that's come from?
4: It's natural. It's We're born with it. It's the gift given to us so that we can make decisions and navigate through life. And when I think about when did I start to use my intuition, I think it's been always there. The only thing I managed recently to tap into it and give it a name.
1: Mm-hmm. Why do so many of us ignore it then? <laughs>
4: Because as we, after birth, we start to be programmed and conformed to follow a pattern of use your brain. Mm-hmm. And that's when we start to ignore that voice that tells us yes or no. And along the process, which starts from home to school to work, everywhere around us that says use your brain, logic, logic, we fall into that um, trap of making lists of pros and cons that end up stressing us and creating anxiety. Because at the end of the day, the brain is not meant to make decisions. The brain is meant to make the decision made by intuition happen. So when you go into your intuition and you say, do I feel like doing this? And it goes, yes, no, immediately. Mm -hmm. You have already taken a big load of pressure off you and off your brain. And by then, you've managed to get all your energy
1: focused on how to make that decision happen. I can I ask you a bit of a basic question, but why is intuition important? What, what purpose is it serving us? Intuition is very important because you can live
4: life in a much easier way If you just know what works for you and what doesn't Mm -hmm. instantly. Mm -hmm. So when you go into yes, no, and that's it. Do I want to go out tonight? Yes, no. No. (laughs) Do I want to come here to have this chat? Yes, Yes, no. Exactly. (laughs) So um, it makes you trust yourself. You build that confidence. And once you have that confidence, you have inner peace. You have ability to also detach from situations and be able to make sound decisions without being emotionally affected. I think something that's is kind of...
1: I feel like I've kind of reconnected with my intuition a, a lot more recently. And the, real, the, the way I realise that is how I feel when I don't follow it, which is a really uh, kind of pulled... Heaviness. Uncomfortable heaviness that is really hard to shake off. Does that make sense? It's really hard Absolutely. to try and explain it. So I always
4: tell people that when you follow your intuition, you learn. And when you don't follow your intuition, you learn to follow it next time. Mm -hmm. So in every situation, we're always learning how to navigate through life with this power. Now, the difference here is most people say my intuition is my gut feeling or heart feeling, and people fall into this trap of thinking it's either this or that. And what I found through working with people that no, each one of us has a specific unique way of communicating with their intuition. Give it some people, it's their finger moving, some people, it's the shoulder, some people, you know, sp- some chill down their spine. Everyone is different. And once you identify which part of your body is communicating with you, you go into level two. So I call it the three steps feel it, which is finding that part of the body, listen to it, which means how does it talk to you? Mm-hmm. Some people see words, some people see light. Colours, sensation, feeling like, when you know, when we say butterflies or whatever. So once you know how to listen to it, then you just need to trust it.
1: Now, you're a parent and I wondered how we can foster intuition in our children and also encourage them to trust it because... I mean I think about actually when I think about kind of when i didn 't follow my intuition, a lot of it was in teen years when I knew I was doing something that i shouldn 't have done, but there was peer pressure, there was that risky behavior, and there was a you know a sense of you know wanting to push boundaries as well. But when we can build it in our children and encourage our children to tune in to have that knowing to listen to their gut, which is the other way we often describe it. What are some of the things you do and don't do with your kids to make sure that they're connected to their intuition? So with
4: children, until the age of seven, they're only collecting information from their surrounding and environment. But they are with a very strong intuition within them. They know what works for them and what doesn't. And up till the age of 12, you can still train them. It gets You can always train anyone to connect with their intuition because it's always in there. It's just... Imagine the different frequencies. Mm -hmm. Um, But with children, I would, for example, use with my children, I would say, Do you feel like doing this or do you feel obligated? Is it coming from inside you
1: saying, You know, you're happy to do it or not? My worry here is my child would go, "Um, I I intuitively don't want to tidy up the Lego, ma'am, and I'm listening to my. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's different. <laughs> but we're thinking about, if we think about, you know, friendship dynamics or um, I don't know, whether, what other examples would you, would you say? I mean, we talk about stranger danger a lot when I was growing up, but something I'm trying to get my kids to kind of tune into is how do I feel about a person?
4: Kids are actually quite good in reading energies and reading other people. And I find that, for example, even with my children, they can immediately see which one is right for them and not. Um sometimes, of course, they would fall into benefit of the doubt and let me try, which we all do. Mm-hmm. And I believe this is also part of learning. We need to make those mistakes to learn from them. And the more we make of those, we learn to trust. Now, with children, if with my kids, if I like my son comes and complains, oh, this kid is not really a good you know, he's been doing this to me and that. And I say, okay, why do you want to keep him in your life? And oh because of this and that. Okay. And then we go into that process. So with children, it's um, much more of trying to make them come up with the answer. Mm-hmm. You ask the questions and let them answer. That way, they, they create that awareness.
1: Are there any tests or any questions that you can share with us today to help us tune into our intuition and just maybe see how strong it is or how much we trust it? Oh yes, I'd like to test that with you now. Yes. Oh my God, my intuition's <laughs> like, no, Helen, this is going to be really potentially humiliating. <laughs> no, but okay, no, no, no. I'm ready. I'm ready to no. do.
4: So all I want you to do is just think of one question. Mm-hmm. Just think of a question which the answer is yes or no. You want an answer for this question? It could be a simple one. Okay. And you've got the question. Ready? Got the question. Perfect. And then I just want you to close your eyes, just inhale, exhale. And I will tell you exactly when to ask that question to yourself. But while you're inhaling and exhaling, I just want you to focus on your body as a whole. Just be tuned to each and every part of your body as one big unit. All collected or regrouped. And while you're in this space that belongs only to you, I want you to ask, I'll tell you exactly on the count of three, to ask that question to yourself. And you will get an immediate yes or no. Only you will be able to identify that part of the body that spoke to you and the way it did it. One, two, three. Ask the question to yourself. Yes. You got the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Did you identify which part of the it's body? It's always the gut for me. Ah,
1: perfect. Always. I get this kind of dragging feeling and it happens to me if I don't call someone out for their terrible, you know, like parking me in at spinnies or <laughs> if I don't say something to somebody, whether it was a good or a bad thing and it lingers with me. Yeah.
4: So, so that's the way. The dragging down is your no and that uplifting Lifting, one yep. is a yes.
1: Exactly perfect. right. The, and this is, ribs expanding. And
4: this is what you should do daily basis. Everything.
1: And presumably, the more you do it, the less time it it takes. Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. So in the beginning, I will teach people to put one hand on their heart, in your case, on your gut, because that's where. And you just close your eyes, inhale and ask the question.
1: So interesting. Um, If anyone wants to explore this further, maybe they're feeling really disconnected for their intuition. Maybe it's something they want to work on personally or professionally, as we mentioned. The workshop starting next week. What's the best way of getting in touch, finding out more and what's that workshop going to involve?
4: So this is a series called uh, the Path to 88 and Can I ask about
1: what's the significance of 88?
4: So it's funny when when I was asked by many people to do just workshops focused on intuition and I was thinking about the name for this uh, series and everywhere I went I was seeing the number 88 it was like literally everywhere so I I started like checking on the numerology like what's the significance of 88 and I realized the number 8 in many cultures, Chinese, Hinduism is about wealth, prosperity, abundance, abundance, intuition, but also because it's infinite number, it connects our spiritual with our materialistic. So we kind of earth have, you know, all this um, subconscious together. conscious mind. So um, I thought, yeah, path the
1: 88. So from intuition to abundance, where is it going to be taking place and how can people find out more? It will be
4: at Kayani Centre. love Kayani Centre. Great, I'm glad you
1: do. <laughs> it's in Manara for anyone. I used to live in a house op- kind of opposite it. The landlady still owes me 20,000 dirhams, something I probably should bring up with the property lawyer <laughs> next time that they're on the show. But it's a beautiful space. They've got a Tanya's Tea House there. The rooms are beautiful. Are you going to be in that room on the left-hand yes, side? Yes, the
4: yoga studio. Yeah. Yes, we, d- we do. That we take, It takes um, place there
1: and it will be at 8 uh, p.m. And it's 88 minutes. Perfect. <laughs> uh, do you, for anyone that wants to find out more, how best to book and where can we find you online as well? So you can find me on Instagram with my name. And you can also uh, contact
4: Kearney Centre if you need any further details.
1: Tell you what, if you want to send me the word link or keep it super simple today, I will send you the link for that so you can find out more about the path to 88. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. I'm definitely going to use that technique again. Um, but thank you for helping me make a decision this afternoon live on the radio. Thank you. Ellen. Watch this space. See what I was saying yes to. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you when I can tell you. Adiwa Awad with us this afternoon. Talking Intuition. <laughs>